morning. Let me have a little fun with sermon titles this morning here at the beginning of the message. Have you ever noticed how Jim Grinnell and Bill Sullivan never preach a message without coming up with a really meaningful or clever sermon title? Uh, just a few weeks ago, Jim preached a message out of 2 Corinthians 5 called A New Identity, A New Enterprise. And I felt like that sermon title summed up the whole message in just six words. Or Bill's recent message, Connect the Dots, about how our behavior has a cause and effect made sense. Or what about his message, Air Conditioning Hell? Just hearing the title reminds me of what that sermon was about. So I had to spend some time planning for a meaningful sermon title for this morning's message. But... To begin with, the, message is a t- the topic of the message is a secret, so we'll have to start with a uh, mystery sermon as our title here for a minute. Later, I'll give you a real title. But for now, I want to keep you guessing a little bit about what the topic of this morning's message is. And we're going to begin re- revealing the topic in just a minute with a fictional game show that I've called Guess My Holy Day, subtitled Holier Than Thou. And let me lay some ground rules for the game show for you, the studio audience here. No shouting out answers if you think you know them. No referring to your Bible. Now, how's that for a guideline for sermons at TCF? And no internet searches for you smartphone fanatics. Now, the ground rules are in place, so let's see if you can mentally complete this verse from the Gospels. This is your first clue to the message this morning. And it came about when the days were approaching for blank that he resolutely set his face on Jerusalem. Well, let's play Guess My Holy Day, Holier Than Thou. And for this game show, the contestants will be some of our trusted elders. Uh, Each elder will be trying to convince the studio audience that his holy day is holier than the others. So, we have Dave representing Christmas, and he'll be making the argument, it all began here. Jim Garrett has agreed to stand in for Maundy Thursday, and he's going to be reminding us of the Lord's words, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life within you. Joel, representing, or Jim Grinnell, I'm sorry, representing Good Friday. And he'll be quoting from both the Old and the New Testaments that without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sin. Joel now is going to be representing Resurrection Sunday as the holiest of holy days. He'll be stating that the weather's always great on Easter. And (laughs) the important thing to think about is he has risen, he has risen indeed. Gordon is going to give a strong case representing Pentecost. And he's going to speak in both an earthly and heavenly language, quoting the verse, you'll have power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Finally, I'm going to be representing our mystery holy day, claiming that my day is the culmination of the first four days, and without my day, Gordon's day wouldn't exist. And, of course, our game show host and meister, who will be keeping the peace and encouraging craziness, Coach Bill. So, how many of you thought the missing words from Luke 9:51 here were 
When the days were approaching for his death, he resolutely set his face to go to Jerusalem. A couple of hands. It's not his death. It's not crucifixion. It's not similar. But this verse is a clue to the topic this morning. Augustine wrote concerning this holy day, and they called them festivals back then, it is the festival which confirms the grace of all the festivals together, without which the profitableness of every festival would have perished. If this were a Catholic or high liturgical church, everybody would have come to church this morning knowing the topic of today's message. To liturgical Christians, to not talk about the holy day that today represents would be kind of like coming together on Easter and having a message about child-rearing. It's a good topic, but it doesn't really fit the day of Easter. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm not advocating TCF become a liturgical church, but sometimes we can miss out on some of the depth and richness of the truths of historical Christianity when we downplay the traditional church calendar. Who knows what holy day it is now? A couple more. We celebrated Resurrection Sunday 43 days ago. What did the scriptures tell us happened 40 days after Christ's resurrection? He ascended into heaven. So that'll be the real title of our message this morning. Really, last Thursday was Ascension Day. And some liturgical churches actually have a Thursday service that is very important to them, kind of like our Monday Thursday service. And they come together to celebrate Ascension Day. But most churches that follow the church calendar celebrate it on the Sunday following Ascension Day. So this morning we're going to focus on the ascension of Jesus into heaven. First we'll make some observations from Scripture about the ascension, And then we'll look at four primary reasons why the ascension is so important to us. We'll conclude that the ascension of Jesus Christ is not simply a description of how Jesus left earth, but is really the culmination of the work of the incarnate Jesus, and it is important, though often neglected, part of the gospel message. Luke ends his gospel by giving an account of the ascension, And he begins his second book, Acts, by giving more details of the same event. So let's just begin by reading Luke's accounts of the ascension. First, Luke 24, 50 through 51. And he led them out as far as Bethany, and he lifted up his hands and blessed them. While he was blessing them, he parted from them and and was carried up into heaven. And then in Acts, his description And after he said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was going, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. They also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus, who has been taken up from you into heaven, will come in just the same way as you have watched him going into heaven." Let's look at some observations from Scripture concerning the Ascension. And our first observation is that the Ascension was prophesied in the Old Testament. We see in Psalm 47, verse 5, 
It tells us God has ascended with a shout, the Lord with the shout of a trumpet. And in Psalm 68, 18, which is quoted in Ephesians 4, 8 in the New Testament, it tells us you have ascended on high. Our second observation is that in reading the things in the gospel about what Jesus said about the upcoming ascension, I observed that he seemed to be very focused on the ascension, perhaps even more so than his upcoming death. He was anticipating returning to where he had originally come from. Jesus referenced returning to the Father multiple times in the Gospels. He didn't make it a secret to his disciples. The wording of John 13.1, for example, seems to capture Jesus' apparent focus on returning home to the Father. Now before the feast of Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart out of this world to go to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Have you ever been on a short-term mission trip or on a vacation that was really fantastic and you really saw God move in some great ways on the trip, yet toward the end of the trip, especially as you started coming home, you just couldn't wait to get home in spite of all the great things that had happened. You began focusing on getting home. Perhaps this is a little bit of what was going on with Jesus as he was returning to Jerusalem knowing that his death was about to come, but knowing that the culmination of that would be going back to the Father where he had come from, going home. Jesus indeed seemed focused on this. The verse we read at the beginning of the message, Luke 9:51, indicates that the ascension was helping him keep focused on going to Jerusalem. He knew he would be crucified. He knew he was going to be raised from the dead. But he seemed to be focused on that he was going back to, home, to heaven with the Father. And that seemed to be what he was looking for. And this idea about him being focused on looking beyond the crucifixion is consistent with what we're told in Hebrews 12, verse 2, which says, Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God, who for the joy set before him. The Expositor's Bible commentary captures the idea that the ascension was mostly what Jesus was focused on when it talks about the verses describing the event in Luke. We read in that commentary, the ascension is more than the last event in Luke's narrative sequence or a postscript to the resurrection. He had already mentioned it in Luke 9.51 as Jesus' ultimate goal in his great journey toward Jerusalem. Well, our third op observation about the ascension in Scripture is that it complements and confirms the incarnation. We see in John 7, 28 through 29, and in verse 33, a couple of words out of that, I know him because I am from him and he sent me. Therefore Jesus said, for a little while longer I am with you, then I go to him who sent me. If you believe in the incarnation, in, in the literal virgin birth of Jesus, if you believe in the resurrection of Jesus, it's really not difficult to also believe in the ascension of Jesus. 
these events highlight where Jesus came from. John 16, 28-30 also confirms the strong linkage between the incarnation and the ascension of Jesus. I am come forth from the Father, and I have come into the world. I am leaving the world again and going to the Father. His disciples said, Lo, now you are speaking plainly and are not using a figure of speech. Now we know that you know all things and have no need for anyone to question you. By this we believe that you came from God. So in their mind, understanding that he was about to ascend to the Father, go back to the Father, helped them to actually believe more that, they, that he came from God originally. Our fourth observation is that the ascension is essential to the giving of the Holy Spirit. In John seven thirty-eight through 39, Jesus says, He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For the Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. And again in John sixteen five through 7, we read, But now I am going to him who sent me, and none of you ask me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. But I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. So without Jesus having ascended to the Father, the Holy Spirit would not have been given. Without the ascension, Pentecost wouldn't have happened. We'll talk more about the importance of the Holy Spirit shortly. But our fifth observation from Scripture about the ascension is that it is an essential element of faith, and we saw that in the early church in their preaching and in their doctrines. In fact, the apostles considered the ascension to be a key event to which they were to be witnesses. And the reason I know this is when they met discussing finding a replacement for Judas, they thought that it was essential that whoever that replacement be was somebody that had seen the ascension happen. We see that in Acts 1, 21 through 22. They put the requirement that this person had to have been with them beginning with the baptism of John until the day that he was taken up from us. So in their mind, the ascension was part of the whole message that they were being witnesses to. Another way that we can see how important the ascension was in the early church is by looking at the early statements of faith of the church. One of the earliest summation statements regarding the doctrinal beliefs from the early church was captured by Paul in his first letter to Timothy. 1 Timothy 3.16 says, By common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. He who was revealed in the spirit was vindicated, revealed in the flesh, was vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. This was written just a few decades after Jesus did ascend, and it's considered one of the earliest creeds of the Christian church, but it ends with acknowledgement of the ascension. He was taken up into glory. One of the oldest forms of the Apostles' Creed, called the Old Roman Form, which was written around 215 A.D., Um, 
highlights the belief in the ascension as the culmination of what Jesus has done. You see, the sixth statement of this oldest form of the Apostles' Creed says, He ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of the Father. You'll also see the ascension affirmed in the Nicene Creed as well as the later statements of Christian faith. So from the days of the early of the 11 before Pentecost until today, we can conclude that the ascension has been an essential part of the most important beliefs of the Christian church. So we've started the message by making some observations from Scripture about the ascension. The Old Testament prophesied the ascension. Jesus was focused upon it in the last few months of his life as he headed to Jerusalem. The ascension complements and confirms the incarnation. The ascension was essential to the giving of the Holy Spirit, and the ascension was an essential element of the early church. But what is so important about the ascension? Why focus upon it? Why is it celebrated as a holy day in many Christian churches throughout the world? Well, as I approached thinking about this, I tried to imagine some things that would be different in our lives in the world had the ascension not happened. And I came up with four key things from Scripture. And the first is, imagine no Holy Spirit in the world. We already observed that the ascension was an essential precursor to the giving of the Holy Spirit. Let's examine some of the roles of the Holy Spirit in the world to see just how important he is. First, he's given as the seal and pledge of our salvation. We see in Ephesians 1, 13 through 14, In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance, with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of his glory. And similarly, we see in 2 Corinthians 1, 21 through 22, Now he who establishes us with you in Christ and anointed us is God, who also sealed us and gave us the Spirit in our hearts as a pledge. We are given the Holy Spirit when we believe in Jesus as the seal of our salvation, as the promise, the pledge of our future inheritance. For many of us who accepted Christ into our lives when we were a bit older and having experienced the futility of life for a while, when we did accept Christ as our Savior, we felt something change inside of us. Somehow it was difficult to explain that to other people, but we just knew something had changed. That's the Holy Spirit who is the seal of our salvation. I've always liked what Oral Roberts said when I was a student at ORU when asked, how do you know that you're saved? His reply was, I know that I know that I know. This inner sense of new life is the Holy Spirit who has sealed that life in our innermost being. Think for a moment what it would be like to just believe intellectually in the gospel, but to not have an inner sense of the reality of the gospel in your spirit. 
Well, this helps us to better understand one reason why the ascension is important, and that is the giving of the Holy Spirit. Well, the second role of the Holy Spirit is that he gives us a new heart and a new spirit. And this is talked about in Ezekiel 36, 26 through 27, but just one phrase out of that, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. This idea also fulfills what Jesus talked about in the Sermon on the Mount, in that he said he didn't come to abolish the law and the prophets, he came to fulfill them. The Holy Spirit enables us to follow the true spirit of the law, not just following cold rules and laws. The third role is the Holy Spirit is our comforter, advocate, intercessor. John 14, 16 through 17 tells us, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may be with you forever. That is the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it does not see him or know him. But you know him, because he abides with you and will be in you. fourth role of the Holy Spirit, he's Jesus' delegated representative, John 14, 26. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to you remembrance all that I said to you. The Expositor's Bible Company has a good uh, quote about this verse that I'd like to read. The phrase, in my name, means that the Spirit would be Jesus' officially delegated representative to act in his behalf. Just as Jesus himself demonstrated the personality and character of God to man, so after his departure, the Holy Spirit would make the living Christ real to his followers. The function of the Spirit is teaching. He instructs from within and recalls to the memory what Jesus taught. The Spirit will therefore impress the commandments of Jesus on the minds of the disciples and thus prompt them to obedience. The fifth role of the Holy Spirit is that of convicting the world. Jesus told us in John 16, 8-11, And he, when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. And this word convict used here has a legal sense, a, so, a sense of pronouncing a judicial verdict. It, it's like the Holy Spirit is the prosecuting attorney representing God's case against humanity so that the world is forced to focus on and confront their own sin and to not make an excuse. And finally, the role of the Holy Spirit is power to be Jesus' witness. I will give you... But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest parts of the earth. Aren't you glad we don't have to do it in our own strength and ability? So why is the ascension so important? Well, first, imagine living without the Holy Spirit. The second reason that the ascension is so important is imagine the church without gifted leaders. We're told in Ephesians 4, 7 through 8, and 11 through 13, uh, I've extracted some words out of these verses, but it says, When he ascended on high, he gave gifts to men. 
And he gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service. Jesus' ascension to heaven was a prerequisite to him giving gifts to men and him giving gifted men to the church. The church has grown and flourished around the earth because of gifted men and women that Jesus gave to the church to help equip the church. They've made an important difference in the establishment, growth, and maturity of the body of Christ. Why is ascension important? Well, imagine the church without gifted leaders. In fact, without the original apostles and evangelists who were given to the church, would we even have a church today? The third reason or the third importance of the ascension is imagine Jesus not at the right hand of God. Well, how, why is this significant? First of all, powers and authorities have been placed in submission to Jesus. 1 Peter uh, 3, 21 through 22 tells us, Jesus Christ, who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. Focusing upon where Jesus is now in his exalted position over all, over all powers and authorities, makes the proclamation of Romans 8, 38 through 39 even more significant. That verse tells us, For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So Christ Jesus our Lord, who is seated at the right hand of God and all powers and authorities are in submission to him, because of that, we have nothing to fear or be concerned about separating us from his love. Secondly, making Jesus is at the right hand of God making intercession for us. We see that in Romans 8, 34. Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Hebrews 7, 23 through 25 contains this same thought. He always lives to make intercession for them. Regarding his work of intercession on our behalf in heaven, there's a good quote from the Expositor's Bible Commentary that I wanted to read. It must be stressed that there is no thought of Christ as a humble suppliant. Rather, he is supreme, and his very presence in heaven in his character as the one who died for mankind and rose again is itself an intercession. As Snell puts it, we must be careful not to infer from this verse that the author thought of our Lord as having to maintain a kind of continuous liturgical action in heaven for our benefit. The meaning is that our Lord's presence in heaven, seated at God's right hand and awaiting the full manifestation of his already achieved victory itself, constitutes his effective intercession for us. Christ is now seated at God's right hand, and we're assured the benefits of his work on our behalf. Well, thirdly, imagine Jesus not at the right hand of God as our high priest. We see in Hebrews 4, 14 through 16, 
Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Our confidence is in Jesus, a great high priest who is at the right hand of God. He has been given the title Son of God. He understands our weaknesses as humans. And even in our weaknesses, we're encouraged to be confident as we approach him at his throne. We will receive mercy and find grace when we approach him. But would we have this same confidence if Jesus had not ascended and were not at the right hand of God? Fourthly, the ascended Jesus in heaven uh, is important because he is preparing a place for us. He tells us in John 14, 2 through 3, For I go to prepare a place for you. It's so much easier to not fear death and what comes at the end of this physical life because we know that Jesus has gone before us. He is in heaven. He is preparing a place for us. He's making specific preparation for each one of us. Jesus used this verse to assure his disciples to not be afraid about him leaving. But he also mentioned that he would be coming again for them. And, um, sorry, I think I got behind here. But anyway, without the ascension, we, we also know that there would be no second coming of Jesus. So the fourth item here is imagine no return of Christ. Titus 2.13 tells us that while we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. The early church really thought of the return of Christ as their great hope. It was something they held on to strongly. These days it's made fun of, especially a few weeks ago with the prediction of Christ's return on May 21st. I heard one national news commentator, actually two commentators, expressed afterwards, thank goodness it didn't happen. When I heard that, I thought, as a believer in Christ and someone who's looking forward to him coming... I kind of wanted it to happen, but the Lord knows when the right time is. It's just that so much has been made fun of regarding Christ's return. I don't think it's the role of the church in the world to hype the return of Christ, as some Christians do. But I also think that it's a truth from Scripture that deserves proper place in our minds and hearts and should be considered a blessed event, as Titus talks about here. So, we've talked about um, the ascension and why it's important. And we can de- we've determined that celebrating the ascension of Jesus this Sunday, 43 days after we celebrated his resurrection, we've observed many things in Scripture, and we've discussed at least four primary reasons why the ascension is important to us personally and the church. I've tried to sum up uh, my thoughts in just these couple of sentences here. We can conclude 
the ascension of Jesus Christ is not simply a description of how Jesus left earth, but it is really the culmination of the work of the incarnate Christ. The ascension was an essential element in the mission and witness of the early church, and it is an extremely important truth for the church today. The Expositor's Bible Company has a good quote uh, concerning the verses in uh, Acts. It says, Luke's point in Acts 1, 9 through 11 is that the missionary activity of the early Christian church rested not only on Jesus' mandate, but also on his living presence in heaven and the sure promise of his return. Luke insists that Christian mission must be based on the ascended and living Lord who directs his church from heaven and who will return to consummate what has, he has begun. So the ascension, if it's an essential element for the early church, shouldn't it be an essential element for the 21st century church? We need to rethink the importance of the ascension in the full picture of the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. It's not just his incarnation where God became flesh. It's not just his ministry where Jesus showed us who God is and what God is like. It's not just his death for the payment of our sins, his resurrection to demonstrate victory over sin. It's also the ascension to demonstrate that he is living in heaven at the right hand of God and has sent the Holy Spirit to his followers. Why is the ascension important? As I thought about why the ascension is important, I delved into trying to imagine, well, what if Jesus hadn't ascended? But today we celebrate the fact that he did ascend. Praise God that we do indeed have the Holy Spirit in the world and in us as believers. We have had and continue to have gifted leaders in the church We have assurance that Jesus is at the right hand of God, making intercession for us, far above all powers and principalities, the high priest we can go to with confidence. We have the blessed hope of anticipating Christ's return. So this morning we celebrate Jesus, the truth of his his resurrection and his ascension. He has ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father.